Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline, founder of Baytalk and host of the show. Last week I spoke with Bridging the Gap Foundation and in this podcast I share my conversation with you. I was joined by Dean Rioli who sits on the board of Bridging the Gap Foundation and has worked for over 14 years to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into sustainable employment. I was also joined by Colin Bailey, who is the Head of Development for Menzies School of Health Research. The Menzies School of Health Research, combined with Charles Darwin University, established the Bridging the Gap Foundation with the goal to improve and advance the lives of Indigenous Australians. The podcast focuses on challenges faced in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities. We discuss the impact that chronic superative otitis media has on education the high levels of kidney failure in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities, and how, as a nation, we can raise awareness through conversation and education in our schools. The link to the articles and the documentaries referred to in the podcast are on my website. Just to let people know, Baytalk is donating 8% of all membership fees. This can go either to a local school, sports club, or my chosen charity, Bridging the Gap. You may choose it to be an even split between the three. Hi Colin and Dean, thanks for coming on to speak with me today and ask uh, or help me answer some questions that I have about Bridging the Gap Foundation and just before we start if you can tell me a little bit about yourselves. Uh, my name is Dean Rioli, uh, the, the Deputy Chair of the Bridging the Gap Foundation. I'm from the Tiwi Islands, um, I've, I grew up on the Tiwi Islands uh, before making my way down to, to Perth and, and going to school and, and getting drafted to, to Victoria, to, to Melbourne um, at the SNM Football Club. I retired in 2006 and uh, ever since then I've just been in, involved with Aboriginal employment, uh, supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders into to, uh, traineeships, apprenticeships, uh, into to mainstream organisations that have uh, needed my support, I guess, in, in um, you know uh, finding ways to to attract people, but then more importantly retain Aboriginal people into their environment. So yeah, it's been 14 years of of, uh, of great work and rewarding work. So um, yeah, that's that's what I do now, and uh, I've been involved in in, in coaching uh, sporting teams for 14 years as well. So yeah, I've done a fair bit with pretty uh, busy. Young, young yeah, that's right. Colin? Okay. And then my, my name's Colin Bailey. I am the Head of Development uh, for Bridging the Gap Foundation, and I'm also the Head of Development for Menzies School of Health Research um, that does work in the area of um, health, well, health and education research, uh, particularly amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in remote and regional Australia. So I'll get just um, going with my first question, but before I start, I just wanted to know, in particular from you, Dean, what's the respectful way to refer to Indigenous Australians? Um, I've heard that some ways are disrespectful, and I just yeah. wanted to know firsthand from you. <laughs> I know every couple of years it changes as well. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, like, I don't like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. You know, some people prefer First Nations people, but... I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders is what I always use, so mm-hmm. uh, I need to make sure even as an Aboriginal person, I, I'm, I don't offend anyone. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, you can never go wrong. So just in regards now to, to the foundation, Colin gave me some some stuff to watch and some information to read, and one of the things that he gave me was the 
catching the dragonflies. I learned in that that chronic superative Otis media is having a, a big impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities. The World Health Organization says that that it's problematic if four percent of a community has it. However, in the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, about 85% of people can be affected. So these are obviously third world stats in a first world country, and the Aboriginal culture is passed down through the stories. And so how does that work with history, passing down the history of the culture, if you can't even maybe hear the stories that are passed down? And what other implications are there? For children that can't hear, how, how else does it affect them just in life? Yeah, no, look, I, I, you know, I went to school on the Tiwi Islands at Garden Point and, and uh, it was very, it was common for, um, you know, the, 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 the kids that we went to school with that had very serious uh, ear infections and those stats uh, are alarming and they are third world stats. Mm. Um, but and that's the thing. It was almost the norm um, growing up. Where I think now the, uh, the the education that you know local communities are getting now that you know it, it's, it's it is preventable, um, it is treatable. Um, so you know I think that is is fantastic at the moment. But you know I just know of the the, the students that struggled with the, the hearing um, in the very early days, uh, it is, it affects their, their language, their, their whole learning, their, you know, their ability to, to, to progress, um, you know, in their uh, academic levels, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, it is very much a challenge. And, you know, the, you talk about the, the cultural learnings uh, that they may be missing out on. The mm. best thing that, or from my experience on the Tiwi Islands, a lot of the, the, the dance, um, you know, the, the, the hunting, the, the basket weaving, the, everything that we learned as kids was basically shown to us. So it okay. is, you sit down with the elders, they show you exactly how to do it. So I know, you know, if there, there's some serious uh, learning, oh, sorry, hearing um, challenges uh, with some kids that, you know, they're able to see and they do. And that's where a lot of the... the young kids that, that did struggle with, with hearing um, in those communities was that they were shown and they would pick it up very, very quickly. But you can understand that the challenges that they may have faced because you know, not being able to hear everything, you know, not only by the elders teaching you these, um, you know, the, these cultural, um, you know, uh, dance and, and uh, arts and everything else, it's, it's in the in the classrooms, you know, where a lot of them English was the second language. And then, you know, you have some teachers there teaching you about English and maths and, and all these other things. You go to read these books. Um, a lot of the kids will sit in the, the back of the class but won't have the confidence to, to put their hand up and say, you know, oh, I didn't hear you or uh, teacher, I, I didn't understand. Uh, a lot of the times they're just very ashamed and we'll just sit back and, and just go through the, the entire day not fully understanding everything that was being taught that day. And, you know, then that just obviously leads on to, to, to further things post-schooling. Yeah. You need that very good educational base just to, to then be able to, you know, step into the, the, the workforce or any potential future learning uh, after school as well. So, yeah, it, it all starts at early days, but it does affect you. 
um, right through life. After so then with in the remote Indigenous communities, what um, level of trust is there by um, Indigenous people to the healthcare workers and the medicine that's available? Oh, look, just from my own personal experience, uh, we knew if we were sick, we'd go to the, the doctors. Uh, you know, there are now more and more local Aboriginal people from communities that are then going in and studying to become health work, healthcare workers and, and then, you know, even going on to, to nursing and doctoring. And, yeah. Uh, and these are fantastic. So I think, you know, in, in communities, you know, we all know that we, we common knowledge that we've got to get our regular health checks, um, you know, and then when you, you're feeling sick, you, you go to the doctor and then, you know, you get the medicine. So, you know, I don't think there's too many issues with, our communities feeling that they okay. you know, we all grow up that uh, we trust the health service that's available in our, um, you know in our communities. So another thing I looked at um, the Menzies Mother's Day documentary, and it highlights the level of kidney failure in Indigenous communities. They say that Indigenous Australians develop chronic disease often three times higher than what non-Indigenous um, Australians and that they're also four times more likely to need a kidney transplant and nine times more likely to rely on dialysis. So can you just tell me why, why that's the case? Or Yeah, many, many different uh, reasons, I guess. It's uh, kidney disease is, you know, the, the diets, uh, you know, I know it's, it's genetic uh, is the main reason, but yeah, I think... Um, Going to some of these remote communities, you're seeing you know, diets in, in uh, a lot of the youth at the moment. It's very high sugar on a lot of these Aboriginal communities. When I, uh, from my own personal experience, and, and you know, Colin can probably speak to other other things, but um, you know, it's uh, a lot of white breads, a lot of white rice. It's uh, those poppers and cokes and, and packets of chips, and and you know, uh, they've got the, the the, uh, the luxury of living off the land as well, though. So they eat a lot of uh, very good foods. Um, but I think, um, you know, the, the education that is now getting better in these remote communities of, of, of healthy healthy living and, and, and sort of what is, you know, uh, good fats versus bad fats and, uh, and the whole dietary requirements now is getting better in communities. But... You know, I think because of so many years of, of you know, uh, neglect and, you know, smoking and, and drinking and, and sugars, it's just all all these things that you can't put your finger on the, the one area of why it is the, uh, the, the sole reason. Uh, obviously, it's a, a combination of, of, of so many things that uh, over the years. Yeah. Um, so this is where the, the fantastic work that's happening out there in communities now is it's all about educating them and what, why do people then have, you know, high blood pressure or diabetes, you know, which then all lead to, you know, kidney failure. So um, fingers crossed, you know, the, the communities are, are picking these things up and, and learning and, and, and trying to, to improve, yeah. improve these and, and Dean, just from my perspective as well, one of the things that I've noticed working at Menzies and for Bridging the Gap Foundation is that people often ask the question, well, then why don't people just eat more healthily? But the reality is, from my experience, is that so many of the remote communities just don't have access to great food. 
if anybody's been out to some of the remote communities where there's often only one store that only has, you know, a certain, you know, the, the, the cost of getting food, high quality um, food into remote communities is so high that very often it's just unaffordable for stores to stock good food. And if they do, it's just, you know, unattainable for a lot of the community. So um, this is no blame on any of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. It has a lot to do, in my opinion, with us as a country making sure that food security is provided, um, you know, that housing is better and that, that, that people have equal access to better housing and better access to health education, as Dean says. Um, so very often, a lot of this, it seems very invisible to the rest of us who are living down the eastern seaboard. But a lot of these communities have lived, lived with intergenerational issues around kidney disease for years and years and years and just don't qualify for things like kidney transplants, like, you know, I, I suppose anybody else on the eastern seaboard would just take for granted. Right, okay, because I have actually, I have a, a good friend who is on the waiting list, um, yeah, for a kidney transplant, and he's Aboriginal, and yeah, um, it's really sad, because he's in dialysis three times a week, that's where he pretty much spends most of his life, is sitting at a machine watching movies, and yeah, it's sad. Yeah, and, you know, as Mother's Day, the Mother's Day movie points out, which is on YouTube, if, if anyone wants to go searching for it, um, it just shows the plight of, of people living in remote Australia um, when trying to manage a chronic disease like kidney disease, which is overwhelming. You know, it's hard enough for somebody living in an urban region mm. to, to get dialysis regularly, but when there's only one dialysis chair in a small community and you know a large number of the community members need access to that three or four times a week and um you know it becomes really really hard for people to manage so yeah i'm with dean i really i'm so pleased that education is improving but you know i think as a country we've got to do better we really do now these uh, this question I, I hope it's okay that i'm asking i think you would have seen the the questions already dean i hope but i just wanted to know what are the key drivers for there being a high... Because that was where my first interest came in about wanting to learn more about Indigenous communities was why is there a high rate of Indigenous um, Torres Strait Island people? Sorry, I don't know if I did it right. <laughs> but in, in, um, <laughs> in incarceration, just in the first place, how does that happen? And what can we as a society do to stop that from happening? Because that's what triggered my interest in the first place to learn about bridging the gap foundation was was that yeah this is uh obviously similar to the the, the health messaging it, it, there's so many different parts to to the incarceration rates as well it's uh we're talking about poor health uh, but you know inadequate housing family violence unemployment drug and alcohol abuse lack of education financial stress there's, there's so many different things that could be a reason um you know for for an individual um to 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 be incarcerated uh yeah so look it's there's so many champions out there that are doing such great work um to try and um you know reduce the the rates of incarceration uh, there's organizations that are doing fantastic work out there um, you know, I think I read something, it was about 920 uh, Aboriginal men per 100,000. And, you know, when you look at the population of, yeah. of Aboriginal people, it's, um, 
Yeah, we're, it's a very small, what are you looking at, 1.82% say of the Australian population. It's, um, you know, they're, they're very high numbers. Um, and, you know, that's where it's hard for, for myself to speak individually on it because, you know, I, my, my, my area of, I guess, uh, expertise and focus is uh, training and employment, uh, which plays a huge role in, um, you know, helping an individual, um, you know, gain purpose uh, for themselves individually where, you know, to have someone then get trained up and then, uh, you know, gain employment, um, learn valuable team skills uh, and then also to be able to provide for himself or herself independently uh, but then also support, you know, the, the family uh, mm-hmm. is a huge achievement for an individual. So yeah. that's where, you know, going back to the, the ear health way back at for the one and two-year-olds, for us it's so valuable to, to make sure we treat these and prevent, you know, the, this disease so that uh, young Aboriginal men and women can get great education bases uh, to then go on and, and become valuable uh, members, you know, of not only just their, their household and their community and a work environment, it's it's just, uh, it gives them self-belief, it gives them, you know, self-confidence that, uh, you know, they can add value to their community and for their household uh, and to a an employer as well, that they've got confidence that I belong in this environment. So I think when an individual feels they can add value and they belong somewhere, then hopefully that keeps them on the right track. But, you know, you, you talk about all those uh, potential um, reasons for, you know, that vicious cycle of, of you know, people becoming incarcerated. Uh, I read somewhere that, you know, 90%, uh, where did I read it? It was say 90% of the people incarcerated uh, were found to have had um, ear health um, yeah. issues as a kid. Uh, as a child or, sorry, while they were in there. So, you know, that speaks volume of, mm. of what we're talking about right now, about the, the reasons why we need to get the ear health right at such a young age because, you know, by the time they're becoming, uh, by the time they uh, are incarcerated, 90% of them are found to have yep. um, you know, hearing issues. So, yeah, and that's where for us it's, you know, we're only one part of, of the solution when you talk about health and uh, training and employment. And there's other people who are experts in fields that are doing such fantastic work. And I think as a combination, um, there is a reduction. I know that, that there is a reduction in, in the, the rate of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders uh, becoming incarcerated. So, you know, I think just a little upon a little will become a lot. And, you know, we just focus on what we can do and then others are doing the same. Then we're hoping we'll get some fantastic you know, change down, yeah. down the track. So... How then, with somebody like like me, who's, you know, just one person, how can we raise awareness as to what's happening in our country to um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Island people, and what should we be teaching our children in in the school so that we can help future generations? Just in your opinion, I think it's not. Fantastic. I think it's fantastic what you're doing right now. You know, as one person, you're talking about it. Uh, you're, you're promoting it, you're, you're sharing it. Um. Okay, well, I would just go, I mean, I, I think I can only talk from 
a non-Indigenous perspective and, and having worked at Menzies School of Health Research for many years now and Bridging the Gap Foundation, one of the biggest things that I've learned is that and what I believe it is not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's responsibility to teach us. Mm. It is our responsibility to find out. And there are more than enough resources out there if you want to go. So the first thing about raising awareness for me is find out. You know, just start by learning, just start by reading Aboriginal books, books written by Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Read Aboriginal news. Look at, um, watch NITV, you know, National Indigenous Aboriginal TV. Listen to Aboriginal music. Start with those things. There are awesome opportunities like the Gama Festival that happens every year in Nullumboy, which is up in East Arnhem Land, which is an absolute four-day celebration um, in the bush of Yolmi culture. And it's a, it's a mind-blowing experience to go and immerse yourself in all things Aboriginal. Um, so there are many, many ways that as a human being, if you want to raise awareness, it starts with knowledge from my perspective. So can and I just... <laughs> I just want yeah. to interrupt there is that I understand that it's it's up to us, you know, as an individual to mm -hmm. do your research and find out, but how do you know, how do you get people to know that they need to go and do the research and find out? How do we raise awareness for people to actually want to know? You know what I mean? Like yeah. what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Oh, well, I think the point is, is what you're doing, what you're doing right now is part of it. The more of us who are actually sharing in smaller conversations with other people, what you've learned and why it's important to you mm -hmm. is going to influence others to investigate. You yeah. know, the media gives a very one-sided story often on what's happening in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. So the more we find out for ourselves and then just influence somebody else, our family members, our friends, anybody we talk to, like I can see from what you've been doing is that you're clearly already passionate about this topic. So it's infectious, you know, mm -hmm. um, just by spreading the word, by by talking to individuals regularly, talking to members of your family, talking to your children who are huge influencers and are going to yeah. take this back to their yeah. communities and schools, trying to find a way, talking to teachers in communities to go, how is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture featured in our curriculum? I'd like to know more. I remember doing that as a parent going, you know, I'm not seeing much of it. Where, where is this? Um, and just so that, that's my perspective. Um, I don't know. Do you agree with that, Dean? Or do you? Oh, look, a lot of yeah, yes, I do. Um, and I think Caroline, what you're doing, talking about it, which Collins just mentioned, is is uh, you know where where we need to be is just people constantly having conversation, and and that's where I know just in the 15 years you know working in, in Melbourne, it, it's um, things are on the. The, the up in terms of, you know, people wanting to, to learn and, and, you know, there's more cultural awareness training, cultural competency training um, now with major organisations. Um, you know, I think Colin mentioned now the NITV, you know, watching those news stories because it's uh, Aboriginal people telling Aboriginal stories and, and it's not just, you know, the mainstream media talking, you know, about the, the negatives in, in Aboriginal communities. I think turn on the news now it's it's almost you know the, the negatives on all communities are really that make the news it's only mm -hmm. a half an hour time slot or whatever it is but go to nit uh, which is national indigenous times okay. uh, you know it's uh, uh the the online uh, media um you know the uh, nitv you know they have some fantastic stories and um 
you know, that's where it, it really Aboriginal people and reporters reporting positives as well as the, you know, the, the, the things that need improvement in, in remote communities. And, and, you know, that's fantastic. But I think one thing I've learned in my 15-odd years uh, teaching cultural awareness, cultural competency training in Victoria is a lot of people who sit through those sessions really ask the question of why wasn't I taught this at school, you know, and what, uh, you know, I've lived in Australia for so long or I've grown up here and I knew nothing about any of this stuff. So, and that's where it's really just about acknowledging the past and what's happened and, um, you know, sharing, you know, the, the facts of, of what's happened in Australia. Um, and then really, it, it's not, uh, you'll find that most Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders that you work with, it's not about, you know, feeling sorry for them or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders past. It's now about well, just acknowledging that this has happened and and really it's just uh, sharing in the, the opportunities that we keep talking about is, and, you know, for, for community groups and individuals uh, to be to be heard, um, to, to be able to share their stories. Um, you know, and that's where anything to do with, with uh, youth and kids coming through, you'll find so many Aboriginal on the communities they just love sharing their 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 past their their journeys and and you know sharing their culture with with non-aboriginal people um but you know it's it, it is i've definitely seen a change that people want to learn they want to understand they want to know well how can we do our bit to help um and you know i think while working together there's going to be some you know some some definite uh, improvements and positive outcomes, but um, I think just from what we're doing right now and talking about it, which this will get shared and viewed by so many people who may not have a, uh, a broad understanding of, of what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders face, but, you know, I, I just believe that, uh, yeah, as we spoke about, go and watch NITV uh, and go and read the National Indigenous Times and, and uh, yeah, learn about uh, what Aboriginal people are talking about. Yeah, and I also... My only other added comment to that that I've learnt is also choose about who you listen to, where you get your information. So those things that Dina said are important because there are a lot of people who are not Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people who mm. are imparting in information. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we need to hear it from our Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander friends, colleagues. Um, they're the ones mm. who can relay the story in the best, most accurate way. Yeah, exactly. Well... That's what you said as well when, when we first spoke, that yeah. it'd be good if we could actually have somebody like Dean on who said so you're not speaking on behalf of, of you know, it's, it's coming from the horse's exactly. mouth, if that's the right And that's why I'm so delighted that you joined us, Dean, because it just makes yeah. all the difference to hear it from you. Yeah, and look, uh, as yeah. an Aboriginal person from the Tiwi Islands who has lived in Perth and now lives in Melbourne and, you know, obviously went to school in Darwin and in Bachelor and... So I've done the journeys and yeah. through my whole career, I've just about been to, you know, the top end of Queensland and the top end of WA and everywhere in between to, to do football clinics and, and you know, uh, passing on on uh, positive messaging, you know, as a, uh, as a role model, mm. um, you know, AFL player. And then, um, so I've seen a lot in, in remote communities and every community have got their own challenges and, that's why I do feel uncomfortable at times because as an Aboriginal person, 
you, it's hard to talk on behalf of all Aboriginal people in Australia. It's, uh, yeah. you know, I can only talk about my personal experience and that's why I sort of just only touch on, you know, the things that I feel that I I can speak about, which is employment, training and, and you know, like my journey uh, from a remote community where there's 390 people through to play you know, in the AFL and you know, live in a place now where there's 5 million plus people in Melbourne. and um, so I just talk about my own journeys because I know that every individual community and individual Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person have, have very different challenges. But uh, yeah. I just enjoy sharing my journey because it does. It starts conversations, which is only going to be positive. Yeah, I think, yeah, like you say, it's the best thing to do is just get people talking. And can I say just from our perspective, Dean, you know, from Bridging the Gap and from Menzies and from all the communities that in many ways you're representing, thank you for what you do. Thank you for spreading the word. We need to hear more from you. And so I'm just so grateful for what you do. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, same. Thank you. Because, and I have to, well, I'm going to confess, I've never watched an AFL game in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have to get into it now. I might now. have to have a game. I might have to have a watch. Yeah. Uh, just follow a team that wears black and red and you'll be happy. Yeah. No, I'll okay, give you that take it as your colours. Just, just remember the word bombers and you're good. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't actually have any more questions, but I don't know if you've got anything else you want to share that we need to let people know. Uh, that's uh, That's been great, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for arranging this. This has been wonderful.